Welcome to the Arise podcast. I'm Tanya Anderson, CEO at Arise, and it's a real honor to have it with us today, Senator Rachel May. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Senator, first I want to say thank you for the incredible work and support you've given to the disability community. Um, You really have been a champion and continue to be a champion for the causes that are near and dear to Arise as an independent living center. Just just thanks for the the work that you're doing every day. Oh, well, it's an honor. I I so respect the work that you do. And in my role, I'm no longer the chair of the aging committee, but in that role, the the issue of people with uh, especially mobility issues became very prominent in the work I was doing and so it's been you you all have been wonderful to work with on trying to figure out how do you make life easier for people it's a pretty simple mandate but really important work you're right it does seem like it would be simple to be able to include everyone in our world in an equitable manner but it does it really work out that way in practice does it no and I didn't mean it was simple to achieve but simple in the sense that it's kind of obvious that we need to do this. Absolutely. It's it's fundamentally fair and that, you know, we have an inclusive world that recognizes the abilities of everyone and things that are seen as quote unquote accommodations for the person for a person with a disability like a curb cut or um, touchless uh, things in the restroom or automatic door openers really benefit everybody. Right. Yeah. Before I came into the Senate, I was on the Board of Zoning Appeals for the city of Syracuse. And one of the things I realized was we spent a lot of time uh, considering proposals for wheelchair ramps and wider driveways and various kinds of accommodations for people. And so when I got off the board, I recommended to the mayor when I when I was elected senator and had to get off the board, I recommended to the mayor appointing somebody with a physical disability to the board, which he, he did Great. to his credit. So, you know, just I think we need people at all levels of decision-making who, who really understand what the issues are. Right, and that whole concept of, of lived experience is as you said, crucial at all levels of government decision-making, and it's one of the tenets that arise as an independent living center, as you know, we're organized and directed by people with disabilities, and people with disabilities work here, and it's that lived experience that informs what we do and really allows us to give peer support as well, so if someone coming to us um, with whatever their concern might be can find someone who's gone through that and can help them out. So I wanted to also thank you for the work you've done around the issue of direct care and, and, and fair pay for direct care workers. I know you've championed les- legislation on this issue, conducted hearings. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that problem? Yeah, well, it is a fairness issue. It's an employment issue. It's a, it's a basic economic issue. And... Uh, Fortunately, all of my colleagues really understand why it's so important. What we had was a system where most home care and direct care workers are making minimum wage. And when we started the fight for fair pay, that was in the $12 range here upstate. Um, 
and it just wasn't enough for the workers to live a reasonable life and and support their families but it also wasn't enough to attract people into the field and so many many people were going without the care that they needed um I'm very proud to say, even though we, we didn't achieve everything that we've been asking for, uh, that wage for upstate direct care workers, home care workers, is going to be in the $18 range or, or more in the next year or so. So uh, close to a 50% increase in the minimum wage for those workers. And uh, that is the result of our work on fair pay with the caring majority, which just did an incredible job of advocacy. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and I would be remiss not to mention Sally Johnston, who we will miss sorely. Oh, yes. What an amazing woman and an incredible advocate. And uh, always uh, Agnes McRae and her son Charles have just been fixtures in Albany, making their voices heard too. Thank you for that recognition. You know, Agnes McRae is the president of the board here at Arise. Her son Charles, as you said, are stalwart advocates for these issues. And Sally Johnston, uh, who recently passed away, will deeply miss her as well. And they have always been beating the drum, and, and you were in a place where you were able to really magnify their voices and, and get things accomplished. I deeply appreciate that. And, you know, as you mentioned, this direct care work is really valuable work because it um, it's hands-on work that keeps people in the community where they can contribute and it keeps people out of institutions which are they cost more they are restrictive they deprive our world of input input from people with disabilities it's just a again a, a total equity issue that that you're facing thank you for that work well the least I can do. So during the course of the hearings on that issue, and I'm sure your day-to-day -day work, it, um, you are hearing stories from people who identify as having a disability and either are, are bringing concerns to your attention or maybe sharing success stories with you. Can you speak a little bit about some of those stories that you hear? Yeah, I can. There's one in particular that's really been a success story. Josh Virgil is a teacher. Mm -hmm. And he was in a car accident and has been paraplegic for quite a long time now. He was an assistant coach of three sports at the high school and dreamed of being a head coach. Right. But the state law said that you had to be able to administer CPR to be a head coach really? in New York State. And he brought this to our attention, and I was able to introduce legislation to change that so that we, it's now the law is that uh, someone on staff has to be able to administer CPR, but it doesn't have to be the head coach. Right. Um, and he, I, I was able to go a few weeks ago to his first game as head coach of the girls' softball team at the high school. So... You know, just recognizing that sometimes there are barriers that are really unnecessary. Yeah. Um, there's another one that's maybe not the kind of disability you work with, but um, color blindness yep. is we a 
is a barrier to serving as a police officer. There's just a blanket requirement that you have to pass a, a color vision test. Really? And I had a, uh, an intern this last session who has a, a color vision deficiency, but it's minor. And at, at one point he wanted to try to be a police officer and discovered that he couldn't. And so he did a lot of research on the new testing for color blindness or for color vision deficiency. And apparently there's, there's a whole range of, of uh, different levels of color vision deficiency and there are now much more um, tailored tests to screen for that. And so we have a bill now that I hope we're going to be able to pass that says that for, for the entry level for police officers, they, they need to apply a more nuanced test right. to only screen out the people who might have a kind a level of color deficiency that would inhibit their ability to do the job. Wow. So, you know, you discover things hidden in the law that you didn't really know about until somebody brings it to your attention and then it seems kind of obvious, oh, we, we can right. change that. That is, th both of those stories are just fascinating because um, I'm thinking about the, the head coach. I mean, you would understand that's a, one of those classic unattended, unattended consequences issues where, yeah, you want someone on around to be able to do CPR when we if there's an emergency, but as you said, it doesn't have to be the head coach. It just has to be someone available, a quote-unquote easy fix, which probably was not that easy to achieve, but you did. And, and of course, the colorblindness, again, yes, you want to have that requirement, but you want to be reasonable, too. That's, it's really fascinating. Are there other folks that have come to you um, through your constituent work that to stand out to you maybe as sort of maybe the, the everyday heroes that, that we don't hear about all the time? Well, so one of the areas that I've been, that, that got me into politics in the first place and has been at the forefront of a lot of the work that I've done has been democracy reform. Mm -hmm. Making sure that people can vote and people can run for office regardless of whatever barriers they might face in right. their lives. And that one has been really interesting. When I was first running for office, uh, a lot of it was, you know, sitting around the kitchen table and strategizing, how are we going to do this? But uh, and we would have lots of meetings on my front porch, for example. But mm -hmm. after a while, I began to realize my front porch is accessible to only certain people who can navigate the stairs in my house and that kind right. of thing. And so we started really thinking, how do we make, from start to finish, the, the, pr the process of either running for office or getting elected um, something that is more accessible? So I don't have any individuals in mind about this but I I certainly was thinking more broadly how how do we do that how do we make sure that we're having the meetings in in places where anybody can join us so that that kind of led to my advocacy for example on the board of zoning appeals because I was serving on that at that time and right. I was I just got thinking more and more so some of the things that we've done 
our um, early voting where we were able to um, get poll books that now can, when you show up at the polls, they look you up, not in those big, uh, you know, handwritten binders, binders, binders <laughs> but electronically. And so you can show up at any polling place and they can, in your county, and they can print the pr appropriate ballot for right. your address, which means that we can have a lot more polling places that are handicap accessible, for example, because they, you know, we can really be more intentional about where we put the polling places. And just this week, we passed my bill to do that, not just for early voting, but for election day too, that there will be vote centers where anybody can show up. You don't have to go to the polling place in your neighborhood. You can go anywhere in the city or in the county and or you know to any of these vote centers in the county and vote and i think that's going to be a way to help more people who have accessibility issues right. find a place where they can participate in the election process and then at the other side of it uh, petitioning to get on the ballot is really hard if you have to go door to door and I'm always thinking about this I can walk up people's stairs and knock on their door but not everybody can do that Correct. and so we're working on an online petitioning system we've I've got a bill for that so that you can do petitioning in a different way so that you can so that more people can have access to getting on the ballot as well so I, I confess I don't have individuals in mind about that, but, I, but a lot of the people I've met, for example, in the caring majority are people I think ought to be running for office and probably have never thought that they could because of all the barriers there are out there. I don't think a confession is required because <laughs> what you're doing is thinking about the whole system in a really fascinating way. I mean, everything from the front porch to online petitions and you're absolutely right that these these changes that you're thinking about you might be initially thinking about okay this will benefit some of the, the mobility issue but really it benefits everyone because I'm thinking about people who are um, working jobs that don't have hours that are conducive to them passing petitions which generally happens in the early evenings around the weekends um, that they now will have access to this part of the democratic process. The whole concept of early voting, it again benefits people who might have a transportation issue that they can't get out on election day with a certain hours or child care or, or a disability. Just opens or up the entire- rural residents. Or who, rural. You know, they don't have sidewalks where they can walk from door to door and it becomes really hard to get All to of that, all homes. of that. And I really applaud you for, for thinking about the system in that way because it's that kind of not only creative perspective but also the follow-through that you've been able to employ that achieves the changes that we all, that we all need. I just thank, thank you so you. much for all of your work, Senator, and, and for speaking with us today and, and keep thinking about our inclusive world. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and you, you bet. I definitely will, will keep thinking this way because it just feels important. I want, I want everybody to be part of our democracy. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. 
For more information on how you can support Arise, visit our website at ariseinc.org. Support Arise, support independence.